Doc? Doc! Doc! <laughs> uh, don't, don't say a word. Doc, I, I, uh... I don't want to know your name. I don't want to know anything about you. Doc, listen. Quiet. Uh, let me see. You've, you've come from a, a great distance. Exactly, Doc. I... I... Uh, don't tell me. Uh, you want me to give you a, a five-star rating on iTunes? Oh, no, Doc. I'm from the future. I came here in a time machine that you invented. I'm here to listen to a satellite that will be launched in a few days' time. October 4th, 1957. Great Scott, a satellite orbiting the Earth? Yeah, Doc. It's called Sputnik, and the Russians have set it up so that it broadcasts to the entire world as it orbits the planet. We need to hear it and pick up its booster rockets for posterity. Yeah, I suppose in the future everyone lives in space, and this program's like the sky at night still broadcasting. Only now, anyone can listen to astronomy wherever and whenever they want. There's probably some great worldwide net sending information everywhere. Hmm? Doc, listen to me. We can pick up the Russians' carrier rockets at a frequency of 1.21 gigahertz. What? Oh, sorry. I meant 121 megahertz. Great Scott, that's impossible. It can't be done. It can't. Doc, all we need is a radio telescope. Oh, yes. I'm sure in the future, everyone's wearing portable telescopes. But to hear something like that, you need an enormous telescope, about 250 feet in diameter, in the wilds of nowhere, like Cheshire, ready to pick up the signal. We have no idea how to do that. Actually, Doc, I think we might. The Jodcast, celebrating the 50th anniversary of 1957, with Megan Argo, David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast, October issue. Hello and welcome to the October issue of the Jodcast. And amazingly enough, once again, the three of us are in the same room. We are up here in Manchester. Yes, indeed. Anyway, coming up on this month's show, we have Albert Zalstra talking about planetary nebulae. We have the night sky... And part three of Tim O'Brien's interview with Sir Bernard Lovell. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. Star formation seen in a galactic tail. Magellanic clouds and new visitors. And new results from Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. The formation of new stars usually occurs in galaxies, in regions containing large amounts of molecular hydrogen, the raw material for star formation. Much of the star formation within our own Milky Way takes place within the spiral arms. Observations carried out using the Chandra X-ray satellite have shown that star formation may be going on in between galaxies as well. Ming Sun and colleagues at Michigan State University have discovered a tail of hydrogen gas seen in optical observations which coincides with an X-ray tail that stretches for 70 kiloparsecs from a galaxy located in the cluster Abel 3627. The tail consists of material stripped out of the galaxy as it moves through the super-hot gas within the cluster. Although the gas in the tail is too hot to form stars itself, located within the tail are a group of objects seen in emission lines characteristic of star formation, known as H2 regions. In a paper to be published in the Astrophysical Journal, the group suggests that, although star formation in the intracluster medium has been seen before, it may be far more common than previously thought. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, has its own cluster of dwarf satellite galaxies. Most are diffuse, faint, and at various stages of interaction with the Milky Way. The two most famous are the Magellanic Clouds, 
well known to observers in the southern hemisphere. These galaxies are irregular in shape and thought to be satellites of our galaxy, travelling around in elliptical orbits until they eventually merge with our galaxy sometime in the future. Astronomers at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics have measured the velocities of stars within these two dwarf galaxies, and found that they were higher than expected. Two explanations were suggested for this. Either that the Milky Way is more massive than thought, or the two clouds are not gravitationally bound to the Milky Way. Further analysis of the data collected by Gertina Bessler and her team has shown that the second explanation is likely to be the correct one. Using the data, they calculated the orbits of the Magellanic Clouds and found that they are new arrivals, both on their first pass past the Milky Way. This result has implications for our understanding of the galaxy. The disk of the Milky Way has a significant warp which was thought to be caused by previous passes of the clouds. This result shows that this is probably not the case. It also sheds doubt on the origin of the Magellanic Stream, a long tail of hydrogen which stretches from the clouds across the sky. It was thought that the stream was formed either through tidal interactions between the clouds and the galaxy, or by stripping of gas from the clouds as they passed through the tenuous gas of the outer Milky Way. If this is the first pass of the clouds, then neither theory explains the stream. In recent years there have been several missions to Mars which have mapped the surface in greater and greater detail, and several landers which have analysed rock samples for signs of life. Several of these missions have produced results which seem to imply that the planet had a wet past, with many surface features apparently formed by a liquid flow. Now, images from the High Resolution Imaging Science Experiment, or HiRISE, on board Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, have shown that some of the features previously thought to be caused by liquid flows could have been created by dry flows instead. A dry flow is the movement of loose debris down a steep slope, like the way sand will flow down a steep slope in the desert on the Earth. One example, described in the September 21st issue of Science, is Athabasca Vallis. The favourite explanation for the formation is that water welling up through a crack in the ground sliced through existing lava flows to form the valley. What the latest high-rise images show is that the original channels and sediments, probably originally formed by water much earlier, appear to be buried by large amounts of lava. Some images do show signs of water at some point. Some craters appear to have features which were caused by water. But Alfred McEwen of the University of Arizona and the rest of the high-rise team suggests that this could have been due to the impactor hitting a patch of water-rich crust. Using recent results from the high-rise data, Researchers are concluding that water is unlikely to have been a major factor in shaping the surface of Mars in the last three billion years. And finally, it is well known that pulsars were discovered by Tony Hewish and Jocelyn Bell in 1967, but now it turns out that they were in fact first detected even earlier by a US Air Force radar operator stationed at a remote outpost in Alaska. In 1967, Staff Sergeant Charles Scheisler was monitoring an early warning radar system which was used to look for incoming missiles from across the Pacific Ocean. Radar works by sending out a strong signal and then listening for echoes returning from objects in the beam. The system Scheisler was using was configured to display only highly variable echoes, which reflections from fast-moving rockets certainly would be. He noticed a faint signal on his screen which continued to appear in the same place but appearing four minutes earlier each day. Having previously been a navigator in the Air Force, Scheisler knew that the stars rose four minutes earlier each day due to the Earth's motion. He calculated the position of the source in the sky and compared it to a catalogue of known radio sources at the time, determining that it was the radio source known as Taurus A, or the Crab Nebula. 
He continued to note the positions of other similar sources he detected using the radar system, and made what was probably the first catalogue of pulsars. At the time, the work of the radar station was classified, so his discovery, although predating the work by Hewish and Bell, was never published until the radar station was finally decommissioned. Thanks, Megan. Now, as usual, we ask for your feedback. We keep on asking you for five-star reviews in iTunes or postcards or emails. No postcards this month, Dave. Oh. No, we didn't get any postcards. So if anybody out there feels like sending us a postcard from their neck of the woods, please do so. You'll find our uh, address on the website. And just drop us a line and let us know that you're listening from whoever you are. It doesn't matter if it's in Birmingham. You can still send us a postcard. That's right. Thank you very much to the people who've emailed us in the past couple of weeks. Those are Andrew Robertson and John Cave. Thank you very much for your feedback. And please send us more. Yes, please keep the feedback coming in. We need to know what we're doing right. You can feedback, if you like, on the Jodcast website. Yep, if like you like, it's the only way that you can do it. <laughs> please send us your feedback on the feedback page of the Jodcast website at www.jodcast.net. Of course, we also ask for your feedback on iTunes. And Stuart, you've got a roundup, haven't you? Yep, we had repeat reviews from Country Bumpkin, who we got a review from a few months ago, and also Lakes WA. And a new review from a listener called Mark Parker, who said, This is a great listen, always fresh and fun, but tackling the big questions of our universe. And one of those is, in five billion years' time, what is going to happen to our sun? Well, eventually it will form what's called a planetary nebula. And Nick went along to find out what that was. Yes, I went to see Professor Albert Zalstra at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics at the University of Manchester. I like planetary nebulae, well, they're very pretty things. You can take a telescope, uh, look at the sky, and if you're lucky, you see one of those nebulae uh, pop out. They're incredibly pretty. Uh, they're very colourful, unlike most of the sky, but it's pretty uh, black and white. What do they look like? They're, it depends which one you have. I mean, some look perfectly round. I mean, the, the, ne the name Planetary Nebula uh, was made up because they look like a planet. In mm -hmm. fact, it was the guy who just discovered a planet, who then found one of these nebular things. Presumably was very disappointed when it wasn't another planet. But he called it Planetary Nebula nonetheless. They've got nothing to do with planets. Who was the, the guy who discovered the first planetary nebulae? Then I have to go very long back in memory. Um, the yeah. first planetary nebula is in uh, Mercier's catalogue. Mm -hmm. uh, although he was not the guy who discovered it. Which you're talking about maybe 50 years earlier that the first one was found. But the first time that people looked at these planetary nebulae, they thought it well, looks like a planet. It's the same sort of yes, that would image mean, you uh, see. That would be one of the Herschels who, uh, who found the first one. Mm -hmm. Um, but at that time, it was not the first planetary nebula ever discovered. I mean, the friends had found one uh, well before. Of course, it was not known it was for the same type of objects. In the case of Michel, he just did his uh, whole uh, search of the sky to look for anything that wasn't a comet. If he found something that wasn't a comet, he threw it out. <laughs> and then he knew not to look at that position again. And so he found lots of interesting things. Among them, he could have claimed discovery of planetary nebulae. What was the connection between, for the first people looking at the planetary nebulae? They didn't realize that though, what they were intrinsically what they really were, but they made some connection between planets. Why? Because the ones that they found were an, uh, a bit dull greenish colour, I, I guess was that one. It was round, um, about the same size of uh, something like Uranus on the sky, and so it looked like, an, like a planet. Mm -hmm. You look in a little bit more detail and you see it cannot be. Um, it's, um, it's too vague, it's too faint. Um, it's not moving like a planet. It stays mm -hmm. on the same uh, part of the sky. So um, what are they? What they are is the, the remnant of a star, 
And that is something that I like about it. I mean, other people make stars, I take them apart again <laughs> and destroy them. Um, my claim to fame. Uh, the sun will do that in another about four and a half billion years from now. So nothing to be worried about at the moment. Mm. Um, what happens then, uh, first of all, it burns its hydrogen to helium. That is how the sun generates its fuel. Uh, at some stage, you find there is less and less hydrogen left. So what does the sun do? It starts to burn it faster. Uh, this probably makes sense from a physics point of view. Um, probably doesn't. Um, it is, we call it the Exxon way of energy management. If you're short, burn it faster. <laughs> and of course, that means it, it's running into a wall. At some stage, there, is, there isn't any more to burn. At that time, it tries to burn the helium instead. But it's not nearly as efficient in generating energy as hydrogen is. And so that works for a short while longer, but then it's gone. What happens then is the core of the star has no helium or hydrogen left. It's just carbon and oxygen. The star can't do anything with it. There is still an envelope around it, very much bigger, but, but there is hydrogen left. And so normally the star would burn into that. Instead, it throws it away. It develops in a phase of, of a very strong wind, a superwind, we call it. Uh, but it's nothing like the sun. The sun has a bit of a solar wind, a puff every now and then. Here the star begins to blow it off so fast that within 100,000 years, there's nothing left. Literally in 100,000 years, the star just evaporates. And it's a very quick time, isn't it, on, on sort of cosmological scales or, so, or, or even stellar evolution scales. 100,000 years is a blink of an eye. It? it is the blink of an eye. Now, for us, it's still fairly long. But I like it. It's one of the few phases of stellar evolution where you can actually see the changes while you wait. Uh, while you wait means 10, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And with a very accurate measurement, you can see the changes over time. So even in, in our own lifetimes, we're only really used to as astronomers looking at things which take hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, evolution of stars and galaxies. But you're talking about changes that we can see during a star's evolution, which only take 10 to 20 years. I mean, yes, these changes that I have seen myself in, in my research. Objects that I looked at 20 years ago now are not quite the same as they were then. It shows how fast this phase evolution is. So during the star's evolution at this point, it's has produced a strong wind which is blowing away the remainder of its outer um, structure. Yes. What's the wind made of? I mean, it's not like a wind on Earth, is it? No, it is made out of mainly hydrogen and helium. So it is mainly the constituents of the star itself. Although a little bit of carbon has made its way into that envelope. I mean, the carbon was produced in the core of the star via nuclear burning, and a little bit of ash came up, and it's actually embedded in this wind. And then the whole thing is blown off altogether. And is that what we see as a planetary nebulae, or is there something more to happen? Uh, there is always more that happens. Um, while the envelope has been uh, blown off, the core of the star is left behind. It's very small. I mean, less than half the total mass of the star is left. But the core, be the core, is of course very hot. Now, that hot core starts to make the, the envelope visible. It begins to illuminate the eject that it has thrown off before. It doesn't last very long. If you wait 10,000 years, uh, the eject is still moving away from the star. After 10,000 years, they're gone so far you can't see them anymore. But in the meantime, it is the hot core of the star that illuminates the shell that was ejected. And so for a core, short time, it's visible. Is the core of the star still a star, or is it something else? That depends on your personal opinion. Um, it is um, still made out of gas. And so from that point of view, it qualifies as a star. It no longer generates energy itself, but it has done so in the past. And so it's a retired star. <laughs> a retired star. But if you wait very long, then it uh, will eventually solidify. Uh, the carbon oxygen will uh, form a crystal. Eventually it becomes the biggest diamond you could ever imagine. Oh, that's good to know. If you like to buy one, uh, I'm open for offers. <laughs> you talk about diamond as, uh, as big as the Earth and mm -hmm. as heavy as the sun. 
Fantastic. So this dying core of a star, this retired star, is still hot and it's still throwing out lots of radiation, presumably, and it's lighting up the remainder of the, the star, which is previously blew off during this high wind phase. What do they look like at this stage? They're extremely hot. I mean, they're, at this stage, they're much hotter than the, the sun is. I mean, the sun is about uh, 6,000 degrees or so. If you talk about a star in this phase of evolution, it may be as hot as 200,000 degrees. Mm. The hottest one I know of is 250,000 degrees. Although that's a bit of a funny case, because in spite of this very high, very hot temperature, there is a shell around it that has a lot of water ice in it. So it's an, uh, a sea of, of hailstones mm. surrounding an, uh, a fire. It's, it's just a funny thing that happens in this phase of evolution. It is very bright for a while, but because it's so hot, it appears extremely blue. Mm. Um, after that, it fades quite rapidly right. and becomes very faint. You can only see them in that stage if they happen to be very nearby the Earth. And the nebulae part of planetary nebulae presumably re relates to the cloud of gas or the hailstones surrounding the, the bright core. What does that itself look like? It can have all kinds of shapes. The, the ones that are found first, and the reason for this planetary nebula name, uh, were round. Hmm. And, of course, a star is round, so you can imagine that any wind that comes off the star is also round. But it turns out that is the exception. I mean, most of them have unique shapes. Um, if you say most of unique, they're really all um, all different. You look at images and say, I recognize that one. Mm. And you're often right. Some show uh, jets that come out. I mean, just uh, jets in two directions. Uh, some are elliptical. Um, some have uh, outflows that go in all kinds of directions and complete chaos. Some of them have bow shocks, like a bullet moving through uh, through something. Everyone seems to look different. We don't really know why that is the case. Let's speculate. Yeah. One possibility is magnetic fields. Um, the sun has a lot of those magnetic fields, mainly in the, in the sunspots. Um, and so that magnetic fields could have principally strong enough to shape some of the outflows. But um, many people are no longer convinced of that. Hmm. Uh, the second possibility is what we call angular momentum, so the speed of rotation. The problem is that the sun doesn't rotate fast enough, and presumably that is the case for all stars. But if there is somewhere a source of rotation that a star can access at the time of the superwind, then that could be part of the shaping problem, could solve it for us. How specifically does that work then? I mean, the, the wind is blowing faster in one direction as opposed to another, or, or what? If you uh, would get some rotational energy to a star, what would happen is that the star gets bigger in the equatorial plane mm. than it is towards the polar directions. Uh, the Earth has the same shape. The circumference is slightly larger uh, around the equator than if you go from pole to pole because of the rotation of the Earth. It start, there's a bulge there. Make the sun spin, it would do the same thing. Mm. But the problem is, where do you get that spin from? Not from the sun itself. So the final shape of the planetary nebulae in this case, sort of an elliptical shape would be because the star was originally elliptical. Is that the idea? Yes, although it gets amplified later on. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have a small deviation, maybe it's a little bit elliptical, and then as the star gets hotter, the wind is blowing faster and faster. And so you get an, a collision between two winds of different speed. Now, that collision can amplify the shape that's already there. So a little bit elliptical can become a lot elliptical. And maybe eventually even blow jets hmm. and further extreme structures. Are there any other ideas that could explain the, the wide variety of planetary nebulae shapes? One possibility is binary stars. I mean, most stars in the universe are not single stars. They come in, in two or th groups of two or three. Um, it is possible that uh, at this stage the star gets very big during the, when the wind blows. 
I mean, the sun will get so big, it will uh, very close to the Earth. If it gets so big to another star, it actually engulfs the other star, uh, then anything is possible. Hmm. Even if it comes so big to the Earth that the Earth would fall in, um, which is an, uh, re- a real possibility, then that could transfer enough energy to the, to the star uh, to give some effect on its shaping. Hmm. When you take a look at the pictures of planetary nebulae, they have wonderful range of colors going from green to red to blue. Are those colors real or are they computer enhanced in some way? Some of the colors are real. Some of them are strongly enhanced and some are completely unreal. So it depends what kind of pictures you are looking at. <laughs> um, people who make images, uh, well, very of these pretty pictures come from the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, they are wizards in using color. Mm-hmm. To, and sometimes the color colors all wrong, but still a very pretty object. Mm-hmm. But intrinsically, the objects have colors. Part of the nebula consists of hydrogen. The hydrogen emits very strongly in the red, and so that makes the nebula look red. Other parts of the nebula consist of oxygen. Well, oxygen is green. At least one particular emission of oxygen is green, and that dominates in planetaries. So areas might be red, other areas might be green, or you get a mixture of the two colors. Um, so those colors are real, but they're not easy to see. Normally what you see on the, uh, on the image that we publish, we have done something to the color mm-hmm. to make it even prettier. <laughs> what do we learn from the study of planetary nebulae? We learn very interesting physics. I mean, how these, uh, these colliding winds work, that is not well understood. We learn how a star entered life. We know that it ejects so much of its mass, we don't know why it does that. Uh, we don't know the process that causes uh, a star to evaporate. Uh, it is a bit embarrassing. Uh, it's a very basic process. It must be, and we don't understand it. Mm. It also shows something about our future. I mean, we, um, we are close enough to the sun that if we're still here in four and a half billion years' time, which I plan not to be, <laughs> um, then um, we will see the sun get closer and closer and turn into a planetary nebula. Um, but even more importantly, part of the uh, ejecta consists of carbon. Well, that carbon will end up in interstellar space and later become part of a new generation of stars. Specifically, that carbon will become part of the planets. Hmm. And so the Earth is not only uh, interesting at the end of the evolution, it's also interesting at the beginning of its evolution. We, in a way, come out of material created in a star like the Sun. So part of the element makeup of the universe really is through processing in stars and presumably during this uh, blowing out of material from stars going to its planetary nebulae stage. That's how these elements are returned to the universe. Yes, every element, uh, apart from hydrogen and helium, all other elements come from processing inside stars. And the only way to get them out is either by exploding the star, a supernova, or by evaporating it, and that is the planetary nebulae. Hmm. Uh, things like carbon, nitrogen, they come from inside planetary nebulae. Um, rare Earth elements, which are not well known, but quite important, they come from inside planetary nebulae. Oxygen, iron, they come from supernovae. Hmm. How much of the star's mass is blown off during this high wind phase? Depends how massive the star is to begin with. If you have an, uh, a very lightweight star, like the Sun, then it could be as little as 30%. If you have an, uh, a more massive star, say six or seven times the mass of the Sun, it could be as high as 80%. Hmm. Um, so it is really an, uh, a major effect. I mean, there is not a whole lot left after that process uh, has run its course. When we see a planetary nebula, we're basically seeing the end of a, a light to medium mass star, aren't we? Because if anything larger were to go through its end of end of life evolution, the core wouldn't be a 
a retired star or a hot core, um, it would be a black hole or a neutron star. So presumably other stars go through a similar sort of process, but we see planetary nebulae as only the end point of a certain type of star. That is true. The glue again lies in the carbon. And a lightweight star ends up with a lot of carbon ashes in its core and it can't do anything about that. If you have a very massive star, then the core gets so hot that even carbon ignites. And that is bad news. If carbon ignites, then the eventual explosion of the star becomes inevitable. Uh, now, it's very few stars that do that. I mean, anything more than about eight times the mass of the sun will uh, end up blowing itself up. But in practice, that only accounts for a few percent, maybe 10% of all the stars in the, in the universe. All the others enter lives as a planetary nebula. Hmm. Now, we can see images taken by the HST on the internet. There's lots of them um, produced by HST and other telescopes. But can normal people with normal modest telescopes actually observe these planetary nebulae? What would they see? Quite a few of the planetary nebulae are in reach of uh, a small telescope like an, uh, an hobby astronomer may have in the backyard. You might want to wait for a little better weather than what we have. <laughs> Um, I think next year, uh, Wednesday, uh, there might be a clear night scheduled. Um, we'll book it in. Well, let me know when you find one. <laughs> those um, Several of those nebulae are in catalogs, and they are the standard things that people uh, like to point the telescopes at. Some of them have very pretty names, the Helix Nebula, the Dumbbell Nebula. Anything with a name like that, um, likely you can see it through a small telescope. Mm. But for the work that you do, you take observations of planetary nebulae using what instruments? I myself uh, work with a whole wide range of telescopes. Um, I've used HST, the Hubble Space Telescope. At the moment, uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope is very important. It's a telescope that works at infrared. Mm -hmm. It was launched by NASA a couple of years ago, and it is almost ending its, uh, ending its lifetime now. I've used that one a lot. But also telescopes on the ground, the, the very large telescopes in ESO, um, the telescopes in Australia, and even with radio telescopes, um, the Merlin array uh, can look at planetary nebulae. So these uh, planetary nebulae aren't radio quiet, they actually produce radio emissions. Some of them are extremely bright in the radio. In fact, the brightest of them all is what we call a calibrator. Uh, we use that uh, to measure the, the brightness of an other object. We just say it's twice as bright as this calibrator, so that we know how bright it is. Hmm. It turns out that the main calibrator that's being used is a planetary nebula. Oh, okay. And one of um, the things that we've discovered is that it's not constant. It's evolving. And if you uh, used it as the calibrator using the brightness test 20 years ago, you're wrong. So the study of planetary nebulae teaches a lot about physics, presumably about how matter flows in and around the, the planetary nebulae and how it interacts with the rest of uh, its local neighborhood. What else can we learn from planetary nebulae? Well, one of the things I've learned is a whole different way of looking at astronomy. If you're no looking, not no longer looking at someone who studies stars, Someone else looks at gas, someone else looks at galaxies. If you look at planetary nebulae, they all come together. Hmm. You have a star, you have to understand what goes on inside the star, the nuclear burning. You have to understand the atmosphere of the star. Then the, you get the material being ejected, you have to learn about interstellar matter. Uh, then that matter merges with other gas in the galaxy, you have to learn about galaxies. And then that matter actually enriches the galaxy and makes the next generation of stars much more interesting. Now you can make planets. Mm -hmm. uh, now you can live on them. And so we no longer look at uh, something as isolated objects. We now talk about galactic ecology. We galactic see, ecology. That is the latest uh, buzzword in the field. 
So this is the interaction between all these different fields in an astronomical sense, talking about how basically you grow a planet, for instance, and you have to grow it from material produced ultimately from things like planetary nebulae. Yes, nowadays we've described the galaxy as a kind of organism, an organism that is changing. Uh, things inside the organism are producing waste products. Those waste products are being used by something else in the organism to, to do something useful with. Is this a uh, just a new way of looking at galactic evolution and the constituents of galactic evolution, or is there something more useful coming out of a, a new terminology? Is it helping people think about how to do their astronomical observations? Well, people's way of thinking is always affecting by the way of talking. So if you find new words and uh, new ideas to describe things, it will change the way that you do your astronomy. Um, we now look at how important planetary nebulae are for the evolution of the galaxies they're a part of. We are now seeing a galaxy as a collection of stars that do interesting things, that add interest to the, the galaxy, add things like the carbon, like the iron, to the galaxy. Uh, so we see it now whole, as a whole process, rather than as something I want to learn about interacting stellar winds, so I have to look at the planetary. No, now I'm looking at an, a process of evolution. It's a new way of thinking. It makes astronomy more difficult in a way. You because you, you, you can no longer deal with isolated cases like, I'm just going to look at planetary nebula. I need to know a little bit about or a whole heap of fields. You need to know more about different things. You need new techniques. I mean, nowadays, I spend a lot of my time studying dust. Now, dust is made in planetary nebulae. Then it travels into interstellar space. Then it becomes part of the uh, of new stars. It gets embedded into... Uh, stellar or solar systems. Finally, it gets caught by spacecrafts hunting for dust. Mm. NASA has a couple out at the moment. Mm. And those bring them back to Earth. For the first time in our life, we can actually see the material made in a planetary nebula and study it in the lab. That is, in fact, is a lab next door where they do just that. Mm. Now, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have known about this, and I wouldn't certainly have not been interested in it if I had known about it. Now I can see that uh, we can actually talk to each other and learn something. They can tell me what the dust looks like. I can tell them what should be in the dust. And they can check that. So we are, in fact, now working with the, uh, the School of Earth Sciences, um, setting up a cosmochemistry uh, institute. That is new. How much um, has the discovery and analysis of the actual stuff, the real dust, changed your understanding of planetary nebulae or the, the evolutions which produced um, the dust in the first place? We don't really know how that dust forms. You know, you can only make dust at, uh, in gas that is warm and very dense. Warm, something like a thousand degrees. It's the temperature where uh, stuff can sublimate and form solids. Um, we don't quite know which kind of dust forms. I mean, we see silicates. We don't see the iron. We know there has to be iron in dust. And we know the iron is not in the planetary nebulae. We've looked for it. It isn't there. Hmm. We know it is in a material that moves out of the stars. So where do we lose it? Who has found the iron? The iron was produced um, in supernovae? The iron was originally produced in supernovae, mm. then became part of the next generation of star formation, get embedded in a low-mass star, um, not used up, it's still there, but it's still part of material that now flows out from this low-mass star. It is part of the planetary nebula. But somehow it got lost on the way. It is lost, yes. We don't know where it is. Mm. So we believe there is some type of dust that we can't see, or don't recognize, we probably see it, but just don't recognize it, but it has a lot of the missing iron in it. Calcium is also missing, but we have a better idea what that is. Where would the calcium go? It is probably embedded in the silicates. Hmm. Calcium and the silicon operate very similarly chemically, and you can add calcium fairly easily. Aluminium, 
we believe that this uh, hiding as an oxide. Um, titanium, we don't really know how much is missing, but we do know it is very likely to be in the dust. So in the case of these missing elements, how are you going to figure out where they went? We go to the lab. In the lab, they can actually make dust, so we can tell them what we want. They make a dust that has those elements in it. Uh, they take spectra, so they look what it looked like through that instrument, and they say, ah, you should be looking at uh, this kind of spike in the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And then we go to our uh, space telescope, we take a spectrum of our interstellar or protoplanetary dust, and uh, see whether we can see a similar spike. Mm-hmm. If you can, you'd go back to the lab and say, we confirmed it. And the lab say, ah, we were wrong. <laughs> and <laughs> and you, you go again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's very exciting. This is the interface between these uh, many previously separate and disparate fields coming together. It's exciting work you know, on, on the interface between these fields. So thank you very much indeed for taking the time to chat to us about it. Thank you. So that's what's going to happen to the sun in four and a half billion years' time. Yeah, but that's sufficiently far in the future that we don't really need to worry about it. What we do need to worry about is the fact that it's the 50th anniversary of Sputnik. Now, this is part three of Tim O'Brien's interview with Sir Bernard. I hope you've heard the first two interviews in September and September Extra. And part three traces Sir Bernard's work from the beginning of October 1957 onwards. We get to October 1957, really, when the, when the, when the telescope did its first sort of historic act. Yeah. Or you can tell us a little bit about what happened. Well, I'd been... Um, I'd, I'd gone with Henry Brown to an Earthsea conference, uh, Radio Union conference in Boulder, Colorado. And um, the, I, when I left here, I think about the beginning of September, the um, work was still going on slowly. Uh, the control room was not complete. Uh, the, the bowl was not plated. The plates were already on strike. And... Um, I had expected when I got back towards the end of September that um, a lot of these things would have been completed. But on the contrary, when I returned to Jodrell, everything was stationary. There was nobody working. They had... um, The answer was there was no money to pay them. And um, so there we were with the telescope incomplete, no connection to the control room, and I remember saying to Henry Brown, he said, I said, oh, I said, we, we need a miracle to save us. And it's strange how one remembers that. And I think um, a week or ten days later, the Sputniks, the Sputnik was launched. Well, even then I, I intended, I ha- had not intended to do anything about it because the, the Sputnik itself was transmitting and uh, the Soviets had announced the frequency, and one could easily pick it up on a fairly conventional receiver. Then, then I had a, a call from this uh, ex-friend of mine, Coburn, whom I mentioned earlier, and he 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 was then the director of, of guided 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 weapons in the Ministry of Aviation or Defence, and he said. Um, he said, you know, um, do you think we could persuade you to put a radar on your telescope see if you could detect the carrier rocket? Because the carrier rocket, as of course we knew, is, the, is in, in another phase in intercontinental missile. And um, 
there's no 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 radar in this country which could detect it. And as far as we know, and he was correct, no 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 other radar in the Western world. Well, there there was the opportunity which I was lucky enough to seize, and uh, the the um, and, and you know the contractors saw the possibility too. They, they were they were we, we were surrounded by press for some reason. They thought we ought to do something. Well, we did, and um, after a, a really harassing days and nights, mm. um, in, in which we managed to get the telescope operating, uh, had the connection to the control room completed. Uh, we had this wonderful echo from the carrier rocket. Um, when it was travelling over the Lake District at about 17,000 miles an hour, I think, mm. in those days. A, mm. a wonderful echo, never forgotten it. Mm. Something, you know, I see now, the, the echo, on the, looking at meteors, that, that, and this echo, whang, right across the tube like that. You know, something no man had yet seen. Mm. Well, I must have had a camera, I photographed it, and... Um, we, we were surrounded by press and um, it, it was after midnight I, the, 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 the lecture room was absolutely packed with these press beam cameras and I showed them this this echo, I said this is a carrier rocket, the ICBM, gosh they all disappeared like that and the next morning you see we had been accused of wasting public money but my goodness next morning that <laughs> saved us so that, the, that, that's really the significance mm. of October the 4th, 57. Mm. Mm. So I, I don't know really what would have happened. Um, we were in pretty bad state at that time. I mean, we were, in today's money, we, we were using, we, we were owing millions of pounds, and mm. the telescope was not finished. Mm. And, and the people who thought nobody had any idea that it would be good. Mm. So, look here. You know, this year has been marvellous, but you know, I often think that 50 years ago it wasn't. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we were being investigated by the Public Accounts Committee mm. and all that. Mm. What happened there? You were... Public Accounts Committee? Yeah. Well, the Public Accounts Committee, um, the chairman came to see me. I remember walking down there to, to say goodbye to him, and... Um, he he knew he knew why I had changed the design, mm. and so did Lockspizer, who who had unfortunately had retired uh, at the age limit as the chairman of the Department of Scientific Industrial Research. And uh, I said to the chairman, and the chairman said, "Lovell, um, I understand your problems very well, and I am sorry for you, but I am the chairman of a public accounts committee, and it is my duty to." protect public expenditure and we were there I still have the, the, the white paper of this investigation in which we are sandwiched between an over expenditure of 4 million on army boots and about 50 million on RAF aircraft <laughs> and this led to the famous cartoon of Papa's mm -hmm. of which you may have seen with me, me and me with begging <laughs> Well, um, the, er the, the early years of the telescope were not, were really not happy ones mm. because of all this political trouble. And I, 
Um, well, this is another mm. part of the story, which mm. is fortunately all now history. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that, that sort of use is the uh, that first use to detect the, the carrier rocket of, Sp- of Sputnik because it was a ballistic missile, which, you know, harks back to the yeah. fact that the government had asked you to build a solid surface, yeah. which had led to the overrun. But yeah. was there a, did, did you have a later role in using the telescope in, in defence? Oh, very much so. Yeah. And nobody knew about it. Uh, I, I um, just um, a few months ago, found all the remaining files locked in the safe and he might have forgotten about it mm. but the answer is that um, the Ministry of Defence and the and the Ministry of Aviation um, immediately became interested in the telescope and um, there was um, um, for, for many years well for a few years um, some vague um, Conversations which I was involved about the detection of ballistic missiles, and um, the, the defence of the country had been utterly neglected in the years after the war. You know, I had gone back to TRE to see what was happening, and I was amazed that nothing had been done. I simply couldn't believe that we had this instrument, which, with a, a radar system on it, was the only instrument in the Western world which could detect a missile. But not, that wasn't the only thing. Minister of Aviation, they, 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 they didn't have anything that could detect a high-flying aircraft. Mm-hmm. So the, we, the, we made a contract with the Minister of Aviation that if they, put a, if they put a very powerful transmitter on the telescope, then we, we would help them. And um, the, the, I believe you still call it the Marconi hut. Mm-hmm. Well, we installed... Marconi transmitted an extremely powerful transmitter, 100 kilowatts, and um, working on a frequency of 300 and 500 megahertz. Uh, this must have been one of the most powerful radar systems ever, because we could detect an object. Um, we, we could detect a metal object only a few square meters across a distance of several hundred miles. Mm. You know, amazing. Mm. So, I mean, detecting a camera which they couldn't do. They, I said, well, if you can't detect a high-flying aircraft, send up a camera and fly it over, we'll find it for you. So they set up a camera flying near a ceiling, 40,000 feet, and it was a piece of cake to detect. <laughs> the, the Russian bomber then, um, the bear, the ceiling of the bear was, was 30, 38,000. The camera was flying slightly higher. Well, there is something... Extremely important, which I had almost forgotten at the end of that story. I um, became involved with the air staff, um, and um, the vice chief of air staff, uh, Sir Edmund Huddleston, in um, early 1960, he had um, conversations with me about the possibility of of uh, using a telescope in a military emergency to detect uh, the Soviet missiles. And the reason I'm able to tell you this is that in the safe, which I opened um, a few months ago, I discovered a minute dating, dated November 1960, in which, um, which had been released by the Public Records Office and this minute was from the Vice Chief of Air Staff to the 
permanent undersecretary of state for military aviation and to various members of the air staff about Hudson's conversation with me about using the telescope in, in an emergency. So, uh, incidentally, Tim, I must say that uh, people, I, I was extremely careful because the Ministry of Aviation, uh, we, we were able to use the telescope for continuing our own work, but I was about to enter into an uh, arrangement for the use of the telescope, which I had no authority. Mm. So I, I said to Huddleston that if he would write in, in general terms to the Vice-Chancellor, which, which he did. Um, that's not quite the end of the story. We, 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 we agreed to train. Um, it was still rather vague about how, how one would detect these missiles. Until I, 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 had been, I had agreed to go on a small committee uh, advising the chief of air staff. And um, one day in, in September of 1962, he asked me to stay behind, and his message was most alarming. He said, uh, we, we urgently need your telescope. We've been training their people. He, this was really to make sure it was ready. He said, uh, our agents have now confirmed that the Soviets have, uh, have a, a launching pad. Uh, I, he told me where I was, but I, uh, that has not been released, so I can't tell you. Uh, in which um, the missiles are directed against London. And um, we, we depend on, you have the only means of detecting them. So I said, well, of course, simple matter. We can, if you tell us where they are, give us all coordinates, we can tell you when they're launched, but we can't do anything about it then, neither can you. He said, on the contrary. He said, on the contrary. It would be... We estimate it would be seven minutes after launching before they descended on London. He said, during which time we would have scrambled our whole bomber force and we would have saved millions of lives in London. And then, you know, this was the beginning of the Cuban crisis. So throughout the whole of that October, we were standing by. Mm. Now, I, I know EMI had forgotten that. Now, the extraordinary thing is that during all those years, the telescope was being used for most of the time on, on ordinary, what it was be built it for, mm -hmm. on, on powerful radars. In fact, the papers were published on it. And in, in one of the papers, in the, um, in the, in the acknowledgments or something, it said that um, on certain occasions, we couldn't use the telescope. It was being used by the Ministry of Aviation. This is when we had the contract with them. But now, during the training of these um, people who were going to take over the telescope in the case of a military emergency in 1962, I, uh, there's a group under, under the late Henry Palmer um, who did what I think is some of the most remarkable work ever carried out by the telescope. They, they, they were measuring the, the um, distant um, radio, radio galaxies, which we then knew to exist. In, and they found that some were of such small diameter that they may be of very great distances. And the precision of which we were able to give the people with the optical telescopes in America was so great that they, in 19, 1960, 
uh, in the middle of all this business of missile defense, they, they um, located where our radio missions were coming from. And this was the discovery of quasars. Mm. Now, as you know, these remarkable objects in the universe, quasars, now occupy a great deal of attention here and in most other astrophysical observances in the world. So I think I mean, the telescope has done a lot of mm. Mm. quite remarkable discoveries. Mm. Did you expect it to be here 50 years later? <coughs> no. I had... Um, when, when the... the um, I had got permission to build a telescope. I had promised people that it would be useful for 15 years, astronomically. And uh, the engineer said, my dear fellow, would you like lucky if it's still there in 15 years? <laughs> well, it was 50 years ago. Well, it's true that after 15 years, um, we it did develop fatigue cracks in the in the, the dark cones mm. carrying the the the, 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 the turning of the, of the elevation mm. and um, that led to what then became the mark 1a in which we uh, put in a, a circular right near the central pivot on driven bogus to take about 25% of the dead load of the telescope just mm. to reduce the strain mm. and um, that took the opportunity. The center of gravity is about the the um, uh, the trunnion axis. So, um, in in putting in this big wheel, which you now see on the telescope, to take the main dead load to the ground, we had upset the center of gravity, mm -hmm. and therefore we had to put another several hundred tons mm -hmm. above um, to to recreate the center of gravity along the trunnion axis. So that gave us a new a new reflecting bowl. So what you see when you look at the white surface is, is the new reflecting bowl, or even slightly newer one now. And when you look at the back of it, you see the back of the old reflecting bowl. Mm -hmm. And the, the reason it's out of action during the daytime now is that people are painting between the two. Yeah. <laughs> Looking after it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a question I'm often asked um, when I'm talking, to, when I'm giving talks to the public is... Um, and particularly when I'm, I'm discussing concepts like the Big Bang, and I think it, re it relates back to uh, something you said about your upbringing, actually, and, and, and your father's role as a, as a lay preacher, is, is do I believe in God when I'm discussing the Big Bang? I'm wondering, you know, how, how do you respond when you're faced with that question? Well, I, I was brought up, as I said, very strictly, and um, my father was... Um, he, he, he would have been a follower of Karl Barth, who uh, re regarded that God was a transcendent, transcendent being who um, occasionally manifested in health, such as with Jesus Christ. And um, uh, this was um, is typical. Well, I, um, you know, I, I sort of went along with that and still do to a certain extent. Um, but I think it was after the war. The BBC kindly invited me during during this crisis that I've talked about the telescope they, they invited me to give the wreath lectures and this was really the first time after the cauldron of the war that one really had time to to think and, and really think of what one really believed that, that that again was the wreath lectures I think what I wrote then a lot of it was out of date but but what I said about 
about the origin of the universe again, maybe certainly, but nevertheless, what I said theologically um, led to what I, I still believe about that. And um, I then I, I I think if you reread the the last chapters of the Reith Lectures, you'd find that I I was already saying that that the beginnings the beginning was inaccessible, and that um, as one approached what we believe to be the origin of the universe, um, one, one, one ran into, in, into metaphysics and not physics. And, um, but then uh, this became more and more rationalized. And I, I think it was about 15 years ago that I, what, what was really affected in autobiography was published. And in the last chapter, my life and thought, I, I, I deal with the answer to the question you've just asked. And, and the, answer, the answer is that I, I refer to Karl Barth, who was one of the famous theologians of the last century, and I could not agree with him. In other words, um, this was... Um, I, I could not really agree with, the, with this transcendental, uh, all-powerful being... Um, which my father believed in. And you know, I remember my father saying to me once when I was quite a young man, he said, look here, my boy, I don't want you to believe in hellfire like I was brought up to believe in, you see? But nevertheless, even today, hell, like in Dante, is still down there in heaven's above. But now, to go back to the, the answer to your question, I, I read a lot of... of of Alfred North Whitehead, you know, the great mathematical philosopher, and of Paul Tillich. And I said in, the, in this last chapter that as I grow older, I feel more and more in sympathy with Tillich, and I think I do now. And he, and his, his, his view, in his, his view, another very important theologian of the last century, uh, together with Whitehead, and Whitehead, you say, his, his, his attitude to God is that there was not an ex nihilo creation. The God was with the beginning of the creation, was with it, and not before it. Mm. Uh, this is the thesis of Whitehead. And so you see the trend of my thought. And with Tillich, um, his famous phrase that, that, that God is being, a capital B, being oneself, and you see, see experience. You still experience that. Now, I, I, I don't know. Many of you may listen to the proms. I did. I do often. And I think it was last Wednesday. If anyone here was was listening to that, they would have heard Mahler's Ninth Symphony. He wrote that symphony when he knew he was effectively a dying man. And the last movement of that symphony. Is, is almost transcendent. It just disappears into nothing. Well, the, you see, that is what Tillich meant. That, to me, you know, the peace which passes all understanding, you see, those few moments there. Now, I, I, I go to church. I was the church organist for 40 years. I, I miss it very much, but my sight is gone. Uh, but I still go to church, and, and I, I, um, I, I go, in fact, last Sunday... I went to in, in Gloucestershire to both into morning and evening service in different churches, and I I I, I effectively toe the line. But in my inner being, in my inner being, like like I think most 
of those who, who are, are now um, religious people um, would agree with what I'm saying, you see. Um, no, but uh, I, I miss not going to church, and, and I, I, I'm appalled at the way Sanders now treated. This is where my upbringing lasts. I, I have never played cricket on a Sunday. I have only ever been to one cricket match on a Sunday, and that's when I was president of Lancashire, and it was in the middle of a, of a test match, and I simply had to go. I might say then I had to entertain an archbishop and two bishops. <laughs> I, was, I was in good company on that Sunday. So I, and I absolutely love the, you know, the, the old prayer book. I mean, the language in that is so wonderful. You know, the confessions, you know, we have done those things which we which ought not to have done, and we have not done those things, but now, O oh Lord, you know, have mercy upon us. All that is wonderful. And uh, so there you are. There I am. I, I, I do toe the line. I think I'm deeply religious, mm -hmm. but in the really fundamental sense, I probably do not much differ from 90% of the people who are active preachers in mm -hmm. Well, I think probably uh, it's it's time to finish that section of the the, the evening tonight. I think we can give give Sir Bernard a, a round of applause. An amazing guy, sure is. And one of the ways that Jodrell Bank is celebrating these fiftieth anniversaries is by hosting the Big Space Draw on the thirteenth of October. Details are available from the Jodrell Bank website and also from the Big Draw website at www.campaignfordrawing.org. So that's on the 13th of October, part of the month of celebrations. Yes, we'll be encouraging everyone to come to Jodrell Bank and draw pictures of space. And you might even be lucky enough to get your picture projected up onto the Lovell telescope itself. Yes, there's a competition for the best drawing, and as Dave says, it will get projected onto the mighty 250-foot Lovell telescope. Yeah, that'll be a bit later on in the year. And now it's time for our big draw. It's The Night Sky with Ian Morrison. Well, the night sky in October. A nice thing about these late autumn months is that it gets dark a lot earlier, particularly after the clocks change towards the end of October. So we don't have to wait up quite so late to see the stars. If one looks towards the south in the mid-evening this month, fairly high in the southwest, we see the lovely group of constellations Cygnus, Lyra and Aquila. Their brightest stars, Deneb, Vega and Altair, form what is called the Summer Triangle. We think that name was given to it by Sir Patrick Moore. The brighter stars of Cygnus, in fact, make up what we call the Northern Cross. And with a small telescope, if you look at the head of the swan, Albireo, that is, in fact, a lovely double star system with a beautiful colour contrast, well worth seeking out. Down to the left of Cygnus, and roughly due south, is the constellation of Pegasus, how many stars you can see within the square of Pegasus is quite a good indication of how transparent the sky is. Quite often, I can't see any. Above Pegasus is Cassiopeia, and up to its left is the constellation of Andromeda. In Andromeda lies the nearest large galaxy to us, M31. 
you can find it quite easily by moving up to the left from the top left-hand star of Pegasus. It's called Alpha Andromeda. It actually shares the two constellations. One bright star curve round a bit to the second bright star. Then turn sharp right, go forward one reasonably bright star, just past a fainter one, and you should see a fuzzy white glow. If you can get to a really dark location and the sky is transparent, a good pair of binoculars will actually show quite an extent of an Andromeda surrounding its bright core. It's well worth having a go to look at that. Another way to find Andromeda is to take the lower three stars of Cassiopeia, they form a sort of an arrow, and follow that arrow downwards. Up to the left of Cassiopeia is the constellation of Perseus, and I'll come back to that a little later in this bulletin. So there are the stars. Well now, what about the planets? Well, it's a slightly better month than last month, I think. However, Jupiter, which we have been seeing in the evening sky for a while, has basically got so low that it's very hard to see, and probably it's best to wait a few months until it appears in the morning sky. You can just pick it out low in the southwestern sky after sunset, but the image you get with a telescope won't really be very good. Another planet, Mercury, is also just about visible in the evening sky, about 20 or 30 minutes after sunset, for the first week or so of October. But again, it's very low above the horizon, and to be honest, it's not one of the best times to try and see it. It actually passes between the Earth and the Sun. That's actually called inferior conjunction on October the 23rd. So for quite a while, it'll be invisible, but it will then appear in the morning sky uh, somewhat later during November. Now, Mars, that's going to become the star of the winter nights. It's in Gemini during October. It's rising about 10 p.m. It actually gets to about 60 degrees in the south by about 5 a.m. So if you do wake up in the middle of night, see it's a clear sky. It's well worth going out to look for Mars. Its disk is about 9.7 arc seconds, which is not brilliant, but it's getting bigger. It shines at magnitude minus 0.1, and gradually the disk increases to 12 arc seconds during the month and the magnitude to minus 0.6. Remember, the smaller the magnitude, the more negative it gets, the brighter it really is. In a month or so, it'll be a little better, but we should, under good conditions, at the beginning part of this month, be able to see Certis Major, a prominent dark marking on the surface, and the polar caps. That's good. Well, I looked out of my window facing east about a week or so ago, and I was amazed how bright an object appeared in the sky. It was the first time I'd actually seen Venus in the pre-dawn sky. And it was, in fact, then at its brightest, magnitude about minus 4.8. It is still very bright and remains so during October at about minus 4.7. Well, if it's a clear sky before dawn, you just cannot fail to miss it. If you use a telescope to look at it, it's about 38% illuminated as a fairly thick crescent. So finally, Saturn. As October begins, Saturn is about 3.6 degrees to the lower left of the star Regulus in Leo, and again is seen in the pre-dawn sky. During the month, in fact, Saturn's moves further down to the left, 
ending up at about 6 degrees away from Regulus. It's at magnitude 0.7, rises a bit during the month to 0.8. But it's not as bright as we often see it. And that's because the rings are tilted at just about 8 degrees to the line of sight, and they subtend an angle of only 5 degrees. We have a few highlights to tell you about in October. There is, in fact, a meteor shower. It's not one of the most spectacular, but it's quite interesting because the meteors are thought to originate from Comet Halley. I saw that last in about 1985, the end of the year, and early in 86. So I haven't got any chance, really, of seeing it again. It comes around about every 85 years or so. It's worth looking out for them for a week around the 21st of October. It's quite a long-lived shower. As you might guess from the name the Orionids, the radiant, that is the point from where the meteors seem to arise, is up at the top left-hand corner of Orion. In fact, it's best to look not directly at the radiant, but at some angle away. And in this case, in the early morning, when Orion is fairly high in the south, look basically upwards. There the sky is at its most transparent, and you'll have the best chance of seeing them. There might perhaps be about 20 Orionids per hour at the peak. They're actually very fast little dust particles. They come into the atmosphere at about 41 kilometers per hour, and they often leave quite nice trails across the sky. So again, if you happen to wake up in the middle of the night around October the 21st, and it's clear, go and have a look. Now, there are two nice groupings of planets and the moon this month. The first of these, on October the 7th, is a nice time in the morning, the pre-dawn sky, to see Venus, we've mentioned before, and Saturn, and the thin crescent moon. That's very, very close to Regulus in Leo. So you have the moon very close to Regulus, Venus down to the right a little bit, and Saturn down to the lower left. That should actually look very pretty. Again, on October the 3rd, about 1am, when Mars is getting high in the sky, we can see Mars very close to a nice star cluster called M35 in Gemini. And then to the left of that very close pairing is in fact the Moon just beginning to wane after third quarter. So that's two quite nice little skyscapes. October is a good month, in fact, to, to search for the planet Uranus. Many people have never seen that, but with binoculars, a small telescope, or even around the time of new moon, that's around the 11th of October, with your unaided eye, you might be able to pick it up in Aquarius. It's relatively close to, I think, the fourth magnitude star, Lambda Aquarii. Again, all of this information is on the night sky page, on the Jodrell Bank website, and there's a star chart there showing you exactly where to look. It's a rather lovely turquoise colour, and it's actually very nice when you look at it with a small telescope and see this tiny disc just a few arc seconds across. We've mentioned Andromeda earlier, but over to the left of Andromeda is the constellation of Perseus, and this contains what is called the demon star, Algol. It's actually an eclipsing binary system where one star comes around in front of the other and therefore reduces the light. That's a very regular event. The occultation of the brightest star happens precisely every 2.87 days. 
Now you can look for this in the evening. You'll see the brightness drop by more than a magnitude over a period of hours, around 2250 UT on the 21st of October and 1938 UT on the 24th. So quite a lot to see in the sky this month. Let's hope we have a large number of nice clear nights to do our best and enjoy the heavens. Thanks, Ian, and more from him next month. Now, a recent development is that the Jodcast now has a presence on Facebook. I don't know about this strange thing called Facebook. What is it? Facebook is a social networking site which has got over 3 million users or something like that in the UK. And on there, you can have your profile, you can create events that you can invite people to, but you can also create groups. So the Jodcast now has a little page uh, where you can join the Jodcast group and show that you listen to us. So That's people all have to have a Facebook account, yeah. I guess, and they can join the Jodcast group. Absolutely. Uh, if you go to www.facebook.com, and search for the Jodcast, you will find it. And that, I'm afraid, brings this issue of the Jodcast to an end. But coming up on the next issue, we'll be talking to Donna Kubik of Fermilab all about dark energy. Yes, it's a good interview, so do tune in for that and listen to Donna's interview. Yeah, do we find out what dark energy is? You'll have to listen and find out. So that's it. Thank you very much, guys. And Thank you. Uh, I'll see you again for the October Extra issue. And thanks very much to Ellie Hirschman and John Morse, who were the voices of Marty and the Doc in our Back to the Future intro-outro. Of course, no attempt has been made to supersede or infringe any existing copyright relating to Back to the Future, which remains the property of Amblin Entertainment. We'll see you again in about two weeks' time. So until then, bye-bye. Bye. See ya. This is it, Marty! This is the night we send you back to the future for the recording of Sputnik's carrier rockets! Doc, there's something you have to know! Is it about the future? I don't want to know, Marty! I can't hear anything about the future! The consequences could be disastrous! But this is a... There's no time, Marty! Get the RF cable, and I'll throw a rope down to you! We must reconnect the receiver to the flux detector. Doc! Marty, get to the receiver. I must be running at 88 megajoules an hour, or we'll never hear the signal. But Doc, that's still six times too low. The original radar was 150 kilowatts, which equates to 540 megajoules an hour. I don't want to hear anything about the future, Marty. Just run with it. I'm on it. Doc, yes, we did it. Woohoo! 